Acts 17 chapter, beginning with verse 24 and finishing with verse 25. <clears throat> God who made the world and everything in it since the Lord... Uh, uh, let me start over. Uh, nor, let's see. God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives us all life, breath, and all things. You're going to leave your Bible open there to Acts chapter 17. I'm be back there in, here in just a moment. We do, as uh, Steve mentioned a little while ago, have a number of visitors with us this morning. We're glad that you're here. Hope that you've been made to feel at home. And members, be sure and look around and, uh, of course, practice the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But we are glad that you're here this morning. Hope that you'll make it a point to be back with us once again. Uh, we do have some changes here in the building that are happening and that are continuing to happen. I know that uh, a lot of you, I hope that a lot of you have noticed those things. Um, we've got a uh, brand new carpet back in the, uh, back in the uh, fellowship area. And I mentioned to somebody earlier this week that uh, the big concern now is, of course, you know, that new things at some point are going to cease to become new. And the big question mark is, is what's the first stain that's going to be added to the, uh, to the carpets? And I proposed that we have a spaghetti and a sloppy joe supper, and we can let the, uh, the members of the second grade boys uh, class uh, serve that. And so we can just rip that off like a band. I see Roy, he's shooting me daggers, so maybe that's not such a good idea. But anyway... Uh, I'm hoping that you appreciate uh, some of the updates and things. We no longer have to worry about the rippling rills of the, uh, the carpet and the, uh, the fellowship hall, um, but we're grateful for the, uh, for the uh, means and the ability to be able to do such things like that. As much as I like to think that I have it all figured out, I don't. The statement I just made about the spaghetti and sloppy Joseph brought to tell you that. But as much as I like to think that I know exactly what needs to be done on every single occasion... The truth is I don't. As much as I want to treat myself like I'm doing okay and like I have it all figured out and like I'm living my life exactly like I know that I need to be living my life in and of myself, I don't. As much as I really want to try and trust in my own goodness and my own righteousness and the ability and the wisdom and that I have in and of myself without any help from anybody else, I can't. And what... I acknowledge about myself openly before you this morning, I hope that you'll openly acknowledge about yourself that as much as you want to try and think that you've got it all figured out, you don't. Because to do so and to think such like that is going to be, for us to think that, arrogant. It's going to be pompous. It's going to be, for us, prideful to be able to think those things because the truth of the matter is, and what we've got to acknowledge at the very outset of our discussion about the self-sufficiency of God, is that we are not self-sufficient. And I looked up the term self-sufficient just on the internet, did a casual Google search of it as I was preparing for this, and thinking about the areas and the, 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 the ways that we use the term, and primarily what came up in my Google search was people want to talk about themselves in terms of being self-sufficient with regard to finances. I don't depend on anybody else for my financial uh, wealth or my financial prowess or my financial, I'm doing okay financially. When in reality, the truth of the matter is, is that we are still sufficient and we are still dependent on somebody else. 
There's no area of our lives where we can claim supreme independence where I don't need anybody's help and I don't need anything from anybody else in, in, my, in my life. Because as I look at myself and say, I've got it all figured out or I'm financially viable or I'm financially stable or, or um, I know that things are going okay, well, God would say, don't trust in uncertain riches. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And as we look at our God this morning, what we're doing is a theological lesson about the nature and about the character of God as the only one that we know is entirely self-sufficient. Because what we think about God, what we say about God, and how we treat God is really going to help us, is really going to affect how we live our lives. How I treat God and how I think about God and what I say about God is really going to affect my life. And in reality, there's nobody that we know that's really ever going to accomplish anything that's worthwhile without first seeing that God is inherently worth something. Nobody's ever going to achieve great things in this life, things for God, who didn't first see the greatness of God. And what we've done in a lot of cases is in modern times and the days that we're living in is we've made God too small. We fail to recognize his beauty, we fail to recognize his glory, and we fail to recognize him and all of the character and all the attributes that's his. And in doing so, we put all of the emphasis based upon my wisdom and my wealth and my, my, uh, my abilities and the fact that I've got things figured out, when in reality, I don't. And you don't either. We cannot truly understand the greatness of God without first understanding how God is self-sufficient. And so what we're going to do with this morning's lesson and this evening's lesson, start preparing a lesson, you realize that you've got enough points to split it up into two lessons, probably wise to split up into two lessons, even though we're fundamentally only asking four questions about God and his self-sufficiency. I hope that you'll understand that what we're trying to do is get a handle on who God is so we can better function as his servants, as the people he wants us to be to his glory. Who is God and what is his self-sufficiency? Number one, let's start off by defining the self-sufficiency with regard to who God is. Because it would, it would behoove us to be able to do that and talk about God being self-sufficient and what makes him self-sufficient. What is self-sufficiency with regard to God? Number one, it's recognizing that God has an eternal nature. God is not bound like time by time like you and I are bound by time. You know, as I was preparing for this, Monday-ish, I recognize that there's a deadline coming up, and that is Sunday morning at 10 a.m., because that's when this lesson has to be delivered. And you, as you live your life, don't you live your life by the clock? Americans do that anyway. But we live our life by the clock because we've got certain appointments and certain deadlines and certain things that we have to keep and that have to be accomplished by a certain time. Otherwise, there's consequences that come to it. Do you realize that God in his eternal nature is not bound by any deadlines? Any man-made de deadlines, it's not like God's looking at it and go, oh, that's right, i got to answer Andy's prayer. Oh, that's right, i got to send Jesus the Messiah. Oh, that's right, I've got to do this. And he's frantically running around kind of like you and I do. God doesn't do that. In fact, you look at Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. And, they, and, and Moses talking to God and saying, God, you're wanting me to go back into Egypt. You're wanting me to go and talk to your children. You're wanting me to tell them something. He says, what if they tell me or what if they ask me, what's your name? God says, you tell them the I am has sent me to you, Exodus 3 verse 14. What God is saying is, I am the 
literally self-existent one. I'm not dependent upon people for time. Moses, in reflecting on God and his greatness in Psalm 90 and verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God's not bound by time. Revelation 4 verse 11 God, you created all things, and by your will, they, were, they exist and were created. God is not bound by time. That makes him self-existent, self-sufficient. Notice this number two. God is not bound by space. We would call this the omnipresence of God. The omnipresence of God. He is not confined in space. Look back at your Bible, please, in Acts chapter 17, the passage of Stan read just a moment. Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with any man's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life and breath to all things. And you jump down to verse 28 in the same context, he's going to say, in him we live and move and we have our being. You know what men want to try and do? Or try and put God in a box or try and put God in a little statue And that was the problem with those idolatrous Ashlands that Paul's talking to on this occasion in Acts 17, is that they had a God for everything. In fact, Tacitus, one of the Greek scholars of that day, would say that as walking the streets in Athens, you would more commonly meet with a God than you would with a man. They're on every street corner. And Paul, in declaring this, says, listen, there's nothing physical that you could put together and say, this is an adequate representation of who God is. This is exactly like him and his character and his nature. In fact, if we were to try and do that, if we were trying to fashion a statue or something like that, to say this is God or this this encapsulates everything God is and every part of him, we would fall miserably short and we would be insulting to God. I believe that's why in the first top three of the Ten Commandments, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. God wanted them to know that he, being self-sufficient, is much bigger than any idol that man wants to try and put him in. When you look at God and his nature, notice this also. God's nature in and of himself is to be satisfied within himself. To be satisfied within himself. You think about God and his nature and how he's going to be satisfied within himself. You know, there's certain times in my life where I feel like I'm missing out on something. You ever have that feeling that you're missing out on a gathering, a social group, or maybe you just, by, by, by nature, the fact that you can't be in everywhere at once, you recognize you have to say no to certain things and yes to certain other things, but in saying no to certain things, you have to miss out. Realize God has never had the feeling that he's missing out, being God, being self-sufficient, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, dwelling in perfect harmony and joy from eternity, joy from times past. You remember Jesus when he prayed in John chapter 17, verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. What Jesus says about the relationship between him and his Father is that it was glorious. It was something that satisfied. He didn't need to come to earth in order to satisfy something that he needed. John 17, verse 24, in the same, uh, in the same prayer 
Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the earth. God and Jesus were dwelling together in heaven in a perfectly self-satisfying relationship. Jesus, in Matthew 17, 11, verse 27, praying again to the Father, said, All things have been being delivered to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son reveals him. God is in a relationship. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, dwelling in perfect harmony from joy from eternity. But notice this, number four. And talking about God and being self-sufficient, God is perfect in all of his attributes. In all of his ways, God is perfect. He is not lacking in anything. You know what I'm lacking in? Lots of things. <laughs> Lots of things. And as you look in the mirror every day, hopefully, again, if we're thinking about ourselves rightly, we see that we're lacking in certain ways. We see that we're not perfect. And in fact, the person that you look in, in the mirror every day is getting older. And you're seeing that there's more and more lacking as you get older. Isn't it true? It's not so with God. It's not so with God. God doesn't change. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, God says to the people, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you're not consumed, O Jacob, O sons of Jacob. God, in talking about a person that keeps his promises or being the being that keeps his promises, speaks to Jacob, speaks to Israel, and says, I've kept my promise to you because I don't change. He's perfect in his promises. James 1 verse 17 talks about the good gifts that we have coming down for the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. You know what was happening during Bible class this morning? Right about where Kim Hearn is sitting, right over here in this section. I don't mean to single you out, Kim. But right about over here where Kim Hearn was, uh, was uh, sitting, there was an ethereal glow, glow <laughs> coming, from, uh, coming from the stained glass because that's where the sun was shining. You know what? It's not there anymore. Nothing wrong with Kim, I'm just saying it's just not there anymore because you understand that the, that the sun moves, doesn't it? Or the earth moves. The earth moves around the sun and you know that the sun is always going to be the same place, but these things shift. And time moving forward and as the, the world continues to turn, you know where God is? God is in the exact same place that he has always been. There's nothing that God needs Notice what the Bible says again in Acts 17, verse 25. Nor does he need anything. Nor does he need anything. God doesn't need your worship. And that draws a big question mark in my mind. Why are we here this morning? More on that a little bit later. There's nothing that God could do that would make him any more perfect. Notice this also. He doesn't change. He needs nothing, but he is absolutely perfect in his ownership of all creation. God is Lord over all. The psalmist reflecting on this, reflected on the saying of God that says, For every beast of the forest is mine. God says, The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I know all the birds of the mountains, all the wild beasts of the field, they're mine. If I were hungry, God says, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. Why would God make his needs known to a man that was not able to satisfy or able to fulfill those needs? And the God being perfect over all creation, he could just look and he could take whatever he wanted. Isn't that the way that we do with our creations? My kids and I like to bake sometimes. 
And we, uh, my daughter and I the other day made some uh, rosemary parmesan bread. And I'm looking at this beautiful loaf and I'm thinking, man, I could just eat the whole thing right now. Why? Because I created it. We created it. And as we put it together, we put it together for, for our own benefit. God did those things and behaved in ways in creation because he was sovereign over creation. That's a reason why when Jesus got into trouble, so to speak, over with the religious leaders over his miracles on the Sabbath, you remember what Jesus said about his supremacy over the Sabbath. He said, the Son of Man is also Lord over the Sabbath. Mark 2, verse 28. God, in questioning Job in Job 41, verse 11, God asked Job and said, who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. God said, is there anybody that was before me that I owe something to? Did somebody before me, God says, make creation and all that's in it so that I owe them something, that I'm, I'm dependent on them? He says, nope. All the creation, everything that you see and everything that you experience, Job, is all mine. It's all my doing. Psalm 100, verse 3. The psalmist declares, he said, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, not we ourselves. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. As much as I want to try and be self-sufficient, as much as I want to be independent and not have to claim dependence on my taxes, I will have to look at myself and say, yes, I am dependent on something else. I'm dependent on the air I breathe. I'm dependent on the paycheck that comes. I'm dependent upon all these different factors. You know who's not? It's the God we're worshiping this morning. Self-sufficiency must mean that God is infinitely satisfied in himself. God is infinitely satisfied in himself. He is the greatest being in his existence. And that if God chose to seek satisfaction anywhere else, if God sought satisfaction anywhere else, he would admit to himself, or to us rather, that he himself is not able to satisfy. Psalm 90, verse 14. Again, the prayer of Moses as he reflects on God and his eternal qualities and, and man and, and his frail nature Moses prays and says, God, oh, satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Isaiah 58, verse 11, would be another cross-reference or verse to write out here. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden, a spring of water whose waters don't fail. Oh, God, you are my God. Early in the morning I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. God is the source by which we can be satisfied. That's why Jesus, when he was sitting there beside the well, talking to the Samaritan woman, he said, you know, if you had knew who had asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have been able to give you living water. God is the one that's able to satisfy our souls. So then we ask the second question this morning, what motivates a self-sufficient God? <laughs> I had a grandmother who's since passed on. My brother and I, it's kind of become, you know, a brotherly joke. But we would go and we would, uh, we would go and visit sweetest lady that you would ever met. And as, she, as we were there in her house, you know what she was certain about? My grandmother, being as sweet as she was, she was certain about one thing and one thing only. Well, more than one thing, but one thing in this instance. She was certain that her grandsons needed something. And so my brother and I would be sitting there in her house, you know, spending the night with her, maybe a couple nights with her, and we'd be watching TV, and she would say, Andy, do you want a cookie? No, thanks, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. 
well, Andy, do you want some, you want some pretzels? No, I'm doing fine. That's fine. She said, Andy, would you like a glass of milk? No, no, no. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm fine. I appreciate it. Well, I've got 2%. I've got buttermilk. I've got, you know, and so my brother and I, you know, whenever uh, we're over at each other's house, we kind of do that just a little bit, again, in, in honor and, and tribute of her. I love the fact that she was so caring and so serving, but there's a sense in which sometimes sitting in your house, you say, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't need anything. Well, you know what you're not going to do when you don't need anything? Do something. You're going to continue sitting there not doing anything. And so with God being infinitely self-satisfied, with God being a God who is satisfied within himself and there's nothing that God can do to make his name more glorious or to do anything that's going to enhance who he is in and of himself, we've got to ask the question, what motivates a God like that? If God is infinitely satisfying himself, why does he do anything Why would God create something? Why would God maintain something? Why would God destroy something? Psalm 115 verse 3, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Here are these Gentiles that are accusing the people of God and saying, where in the world is his God? Where, is it, where in the world is it, his God? And the, the, the Jews that are singing a song are saying, it's not unto us. God, don't glorify us, but glorify your name. You do whatever you please. And we recognize that principle. God is the one who does anything. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Why does God have a will at all? Why does God have a will at all? Because, primarily, God is going to be God who rejoices in his own perfections. We're going to call this his glory. God is the God who's going to rejoice in his own perfections. His glory. A couple of passages to think about. God being happy. You can also write out beside it, blessed. The blessed God or the blessed God, depending on how you say it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1 verse 11, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Hebrews 1 verse 9, The Hebrews writer talking about the supremacy of Jesus over the angels says, God, my God, or your God rather, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. God is satisfied. In being satisfied, he is happy. He is blessed in his own attributes, in his own works, in his own knowledge, in his own doing. And as God is blessed, he also speaks of his own satisfaction. God's joy of himself was spoken by Jesus. When Jesus said, I come and here's a person who has cared for the sick. Here's a person who's cared for the naked and the hungry and the the poor and all those things. And the person says to himself, well, Lord, when when do we see you that way? And Jesus says, as much as you've done it to one of the least of these, you've done it to me. And you remember what the commendation was? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Why is there presence in the presence of God, joy, happiness, bliss? It's because when he is satisfied in himself, 
God has given us the ability to be satisfied in him and in his glory and in his works. John 15, verse 11, Jesus praying and talking to his disciples. As he talks to his disciples, he says, my joy may remain in you that your joy may be full. He's talking to people with sorrow, with heaviness of heart. They're looking at themselves and saying, our master's going away. We don't know where he's going. He's talking cryptically. And Jesus says, I'm leaving my peace with you. I'm leaving my joy with you so that your joy may be made full. John 17, verse 13, Jesus again praying says, These things I speak in the world that they may have joy, my joy fulfilled in themselves. What God commands us to do is what he himself does. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Philippians, a epistle of joy, a letter of joy. Because all the way through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, you're going to find an emphasis on joy. But chapter 4 and verse 4 is probably one of the most famous verses out of the book of Philippians. You know what it says? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. When I rejoice in God because of his character, because of his nature, because of its attributes, because of his salvation, I have given myself the only means by which I can legitimately boast and by which I can legitimately say I'm satisfied in him. I rejoice in him because of what he's done and because of who he is. And as God commands us to do what he does, we receive the benefit of who he is. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The expression of God's joy is in his own glory. We're going to be people that praise what we truly appreciate. Think about this just for a moment. God praises and God rejoices in what he truly takes joy in, his own attributes, his own character, and his own works. God gives glory to himself when he does things in, in the reality and in, in, in life, doesn't he? Doesn't God rejoice or didn't he rejoice for, uh, for joy whenever he put Jesus on the cross? Jesus, didn't he, because of the joy set before him, endure the cross, despising the shame? He knew that there was a time coming where the pain of the cross was going to be over, but all that was going to remain was the joy. Paul talks about that in terms of a woman giving birth. He says after the birth, she doesn't remember the pain because of the joy of having that new sweet little baby in her arms. Now, folks, we're going to praise what we truly enjoy. Whatever God does, it's motivated by his, his desire to express the overflowing joy he finds in his own glory. We're going to be people who praise what we truly enjoy. A lot of people are following college football or professional football this time of year, right? Some people are following baseball. And we will sit there on the couch, and what will we do? We'll scream at the TV just like it's going to make a big difference as far as the outcome of the game. We're going to scream at the ball game as if that's going to help or hurt what's going on down there on the field. And then afterwards, if our team wins a great last-minute, last-second victory, you know what we're going to do? We're going to tell everybody about it. And we're going to praise what we truly enjoy. I know a lot of your grandparents have pictures of your grandkids. A lot of your grandparents that don't get to see your grandkids on a regular basis are going to be able to Hold that phone up and show whoever wants to see, and even the people that don't want to see, the pictures of your grandkids. Why? Because you love and you care about those grandkids, and they are your pride and, what do we say, joy. 
we rejoice in the things that we truly enjoy. Our enjoyment of those things is made complete when we praise. Let me tell you about this football team. Let me tell you about my grandkids. Let me tell you about my kids. Let me tell you about what they've done. And you start enjoying those things, but you want other people to enjoy them as well. God's overflowing joy in his own perfection is the precise reason for his creative and his redemptive work. God didn't create us because he was lonely, because he was bored, because he was unhappy. God didn't create us because he had a deadline. God didn't create us because he felt like, well, I guess I'm self-satisfied. I guess I got to do something. He created us because of his overflowing joy and his perfection. He didn't redeem us because he was inadequate without us. He didn't redeem us and buy us back by the blood of Jesus because Satan was somehow more powerful than he was in and, and, and creation. He did these things because his creation and redemption. He was expressing joy in his own glory. Let me illustrate this. One more point and then the lesson will be yours. Flip over to the book of Ephesians just for a moment. The book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is all about the church that Christ purchased. And Paul has to talk about, at the very beginning, the reason why God created a place, if you will, a people, if you will, that God has redeemed with his own power. And why did God do that? Why did he, verse 4, predestine us according to his own will, which he purposed in Christ before the earth was founded? And as I look at Ephesians chapter 1, I want you to notice something really quickly. Look at verses 5 and 6. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. God, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. There's God rejoicing in his own glory. Verse 6, underline this. To the praise of his glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Why did God redeem us? Because he did it to the praise of the glory of his grace. Look down at verse 12. That we, God's people, who first trusted in Christ should be, underline it, to the praise of his glory. Look down at verse 14. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Three times in the text, God created us, God redeemed us, God has purposed us all for the praise of his glory. And as God has rejoiced in his own perfection and his own attributes, as God has taken joy in just his being and his character, God has done something through humanity in creating us and putting us here on this earth, but then in redeeming us so that we can look and we can say, glory to God. Glory to God. We're going to look at this this evening a little bit deeper in Psalm 146 and how the heavens and how creation declares his glory and how we as people ought to be people who are declaring his glory. Let me begin or end where we began. As much as I want to say I've got it all figured out, I don't. As much as I want to trust in my own goodness and my own righteousness, I can't. As much as I want to think that I've got the wisdom to get by and that I've got the wisdom to figure everything out to my own glory, I don't. 
And if I behave that way, you know what people are going to look at me and they're going to say? There goes an arrogant man. There goes a prideful man. In us, you and I, if we are people that try and seek our own glory, we're going to be seen as proud and arrogant. And that is precisely for the reason that we are not like God. We are not self-sufficient. But what God has done is he has done something that's given him the right to seek his own glory because of his self-sufficiency. And this is the God who tells us, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Folks, I'm going to drop off this application and then end the lesson by saying this. This Saturday, we have an opportunity to function in a specific manner as the work of the church to the glory of God. Not to the glory of Joseph, not to the glory of Logan, not to the glory of the elders, not to the glory of you or me or anybody else that's going to go out and going to hang things on people's doorknobs, trying to inform them about the church and help them to understand who we are and what we're all about to the glory of God. And we have a responsibility and we have an opportunity to gather together as his people and show that we are sufficient. We are trusting in his sufficiency, but we are not self-sufficient. And the people that we knock on their doors and we hand those things to them and we slide them on the houses that are there, they're not self-sufficient either. But what they need more than anything else is something that we as the church can provide. And the elders have provided us the opportunity this Saturday to gather together in the morning and to go out and try and inform people about our self-sufficient God. I'm hoping that you're making a purpose and making a plan to be here that morning. Because whatever it else it is that we might try and glory in, those things can't ultimately satisfy. Whether that's a college football game, whether that's a fishing trip, whether that's, well, fill in the blank, working in the yard. Those things, while good in and of themselves because they were created by a good God, we understand are things that are insufficient in and of themselves to satisfy us the way that he is. Maybe this morning you recognize that your soul has a deep longing that hasn't been satisfied with food, that hasn't been satisfied with people, that hasn't been satisfied with earthly relationships, that hasn't been satisfied with any created earthly thing. You know why that is? It's because in Acts chapter 17 it says that God has made us so that we will seek him so that he can be found. And in fact, he's not far from each one of us. And as we talk about Jesus this morning, Jesus is near to receive you. Jesus is near and waiting for you to become his child. And Jesus is near because his salvation is here being preached to you this morning, that through faith in him, through belief in the gospel, through repentance of your sins, through confession of his sweet name, Matthew chapter 10, and through New Testament water baptism, you can be his child and have your sufficiency from our all-sufficient God. Don't you want that joy this morning? Don't you want to be able to rejoice in something that's going to be able to infinitely satisfy you the way nothing else is? You can have that this morning as we stand and sing our invitation song.